Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cushwood. Room Now QD Clinic is brought to you by ACR and our coverage of ACR 2023 beginning this weekend. Be there. Today's case, 40-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis for almost two years, originally diagnosed with bilateral finger and knee pains with swelling. She had a rheumatoid factor of 243, a CCP of greater than 250, a CRP that was sky high at 111 milligrams per liter, uh, and all other tests were negative, including ANA, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and quantiferon. She was treated before she came to me with first methotrexate, then hydroxychloroquine, then both of those, then with adalimumab. And when she came to me, said that despite treatment for a year and a year or a year and a half with those medicines, she never responded. She was never good. Um, when I saw her, uh, I found that she had, I want to say, like four or five tender joints and two swollen joints, mainly the knees. Over subsequent visits, her tender joint count went up as high as 15, and her tender joints was usually still two. So I switched her most recently, about three months ago, to abatacept. I took her off methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine. Um, she wasn't taking non-steroidal. She was taking some PRN over-the-counter ibuprofen. I put her on regular daily acetaminophen and also uh, abatacept. And she comes back three months later, and she is absolutely no better. Now I start to scratch my head because she's one of these people who's not responding to anything. She still has bilateral swollen knees. She Today she has eight tender joints. Um, and uh, again, I'm puzzled that she's not getting better. Wait, it gets even worse when I do the musculoskeletal exam. She has a number of entheses that are tender. And that's including the uh, epicondyles of the elbows, medial condyles of the knees, anterior superior iliac crest, the tro greater trochanter on one side, bilateral Achilles tendons, and the plantar fascial insertion. But she has no back pain and no history of family back pain. I never did an HLEB27 on her, wouldn't because she's Hispanic and she had a rheumatoid presentation and very strongly positive uh, rheumatoid serologies. So what am I going to do? What am I going to call this? Is this a difficult to treat RA patient refractory to multiple therapies? Is this someone who just hasn't yet gotten to the best possible therapy? Um, and I think, you know, you also need to know that her labs on follow-up, her initial CRP was 111. It went down to 43. And then with, I think, the TNF inhibitor, uh, and since then, including abatacept, it's been running um, 16 to 18. Clearly abnormal. A little bit elevated, but clearly abnormal. So, again, I'm puzzled. What would you do? Would you call her a different diagnosis? Would you want to get an MRI of something? I don't do that. That's a waste of money. By the way, this is a, a clinic where patients don't have any insurance. So, every decision you make about labs and or imaging is going to come out of their pocket, money they don't have. So what did I do? I had a recent CRP that was 18. Uh, her CBC and chem profile was normal. I ordered a B27. Don't know why. It's cheap enough in this clinic. 
Um, and I elected to treat her by changing her abatacept to a JAK inhibitor. JAK inhibitor thinking if it was a rheumatoid spondylitis overlap, I could cover my bases with a JAK inhibitor. But then again, wouldn't a TNF inhibitor have done that very well? We'll see what the new JAK inhibitor does. I added a little bit of prednisone because she's having a problem functioning. And because she has two big knees, the right knee was really big. It was three plus swollen and left knee two plus swollen. I injected both knees with Depomedrol. And we're going to take her back. So here's what I'm thinking. One, she's got rheumatoid. That's probably responding to the therapy she's gotten, but not completely. So either she's got a coexistent problem or an incomplete response to rheumatoid. Number two, she has enthesitis. Guess what? You can get enthesitis with rheumatoid arthritis. Think about it. Enthesitis is a common presentation of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Enthesitis, you think, and I think, is like bingo, spondoarthritis, seronegative spondoarthropathy, psoriatic arthritis. Well, she doesn't have psoriasis. She doesn't have any other features of, of spondylitis. Um, and if you look at the studies that are out there, ultrasound studies of rheumatoids and spondylitis, entheses are involved in rheumatoid. It's just that the synovium is more dominant in rheumatoid, and in spondylitis, the entheses are more dominant, right? That's the kind of the way that's... So I'm not excluding RA just because she has enthesitis. Um, and then the third problem is she's got these big swollen knees. Um, no history of trauma, no history of sports. Uh, I do think she could have internal derangement or a secondary process, God forbid, a crystal arthritis or an infection going on in, in those knees. So I just injected it. I didn't aspirate it because she had two joints that have been chronically swollen. So again, this is a, a situation where the patients are not reading the textbooks and making management quite difficult. Maybe in the future, I'll report back about the success. I want to remind you, this week we start our coverage of, of uh, ACR Convergence 2023 live from San Diego. we got a fabulous faculty. One thing I want you to do, tune in to our daily recaps. Starting Sunday, day one of the meeting, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, day two, three, and four, we're going to do a daily recap. Me and the faculty will sit down and talk about the highlights of that day. You don't want to miss it. 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time. It's going to be live streamed. You can sign up for it um, from a Zoom invite I'll send you if you're a rheumatologist. But you can watch it live stream on Twitter, on our website, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. And um, I think that's about it. So, again, daily recaps. If you want to stay abreast of the meeting with a minimal amount of engagement, this is the best way to do it. Tune in tomorrow for more QD Clinics leading up to ACR 2023. This is QD Clinic, and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is sponsored by Room Now's coverage of ACR Convergence 2023, where we'll be in San Diego covering the meeting live for you. Today's case, a neighbor consult. So you're putting out the garbage. You're walking back up the driveway, and your neighbor says, oh, doc, doc, wait, wait, wait. And she runs over to you and says, you know, I went to my primary care doctor because of this finger. She shows you a finger. And they did some tests and said, I should see a rheumatologist. I said, hey, I live next door to a rheumatologist. And so the quick story is that she's got this swollen uh, right fourth PIP, 
and you look at it and you squeeze it and it's swollen and she starts to tell you the story and say wait 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 we're not going to do this out here um in the driveway we can go to your house or my house or so you go to her kitchen you sit down she makes you a cup of coffee and the story plays out the neighbor this now opportunistic patient is 51 white fair skinned um blonde unmarried has two children living next door great neighbor you would never have known she had any medical problem because she seems like she's very busy, very active. You know, you didn't know she had any medical issues. Well, it turns out that um, when she was 19, she had some problems with her hands. She doesn't remember what it was. It was hard to grip things. It was hard to go skiing. Um, and she went to the doctor and she was having belly problems. And they told her that she had... Um, an immune problem where her immune system was attacking her joints and that um, they thought it was related to her grandmother's Crohn's disease. Her grandmother had died of Crohn's disease. She never had endoscopy of any sort or a biopsy. She had multiple tests, was found to be ANA negative, and she was given a drug, sounds like she was given sulfasalazine, which she took for about a year and then sort of just stopped taking it on her own because she wasn't sure if it was helping her. She said pains were kind of come and go at that point. Anyway, fast forward now over 20, 30 years. And for the last year, she's had this single swollen PIP joint. Wasn't brought on by anything. Just sort of appeared one day. Been a bother ever since. She has difficulty flexing it. Uh, It feels a little tight. It's never been red. It's always swollen. It's never changed. You know, if she wraps it, it goes away. She unwraps it, it comes right, it springs right back. This has been going on for the last year. She went to the primary care doctor who scratched their heads and ordered labs showing a normal CBC chem profile. CRP was normal, rheumatoid factor was negative, and there were no other labs. When you ask about um, medicines, she's not taking any medicines. She just sort of deals with the discomfort. It doesn't change her job. She kind of has a desk job. She said a long time ago she self-diagnosed herself um, as being gluten sensitive. And she, uh, when she went on a gluten-strict avoidance diet, she had no GI complaints. When she was eating bad, she would get bloating and occasional diarrhea and whatnot. But again, never any bloody or greasy diarrhea. Currently, she's not having any symptoms, but she says she's been fairly um, adherent to her low-gluten, no-gluten diet. Family history is notable for a grandmother who died of Crohn's disease. She herself, uh, again, has no other uh, diagnoses, takes no other medicines. Review system is negative for things like a rash, any eye complaints, current GI symptoms, uh, back pain, heel pain, fever, weight loss, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, oral ulcers, etc. So the question is, um, what are you going to do? And how much are you going to charge her for this visit? She makes a wonderful cheesecake, and that's kind of where I went on this. Um, I told her that she should probably follow through 
with actually seeing a rheumatologist and getting more formal testing and regular follow-up. Um, and she agreed to do that. But I told her that uh, as far as diagnosis, she doesn't have one right now, but I think that time will take care of it. So teaching point number one, not all diagnoses need to be made at the first visit. Time, as you know, in rheumatology is your best diagnostic tool. You have all the labs that you need currently to not make a diagnosis. If you feel overly compelled to make a diagnosis, go ahead, spend a few thousand dollars in labs that are not likely to make you any smarter and you're more likely to find random stuff. Your future lab testing should be based on the findings that you have in play. Um, so secondly, what does she have? She's got a chronic monoarthritis, which the differential diagnosis is almost the same as a chronic oligo, except for if it's a chronic monoarthritis, you really have to consider cancer and chronic infections like TB, fungus, weirdo bugs, things like that. But again, she's had this for over a year. She tried to tell me that it was like 12 years, and then I, I got it down to about a 12 to 15 months. But this is going on so long that um, it's unlikely that this is going to be uh, a malignancy and or a chronic infection. She hasn't traveled. She doesn't eat bizarre foods. She, you know, not been exposed to anybody with TB. So the other differential diagnosis at this point, which I told her in the next 10 years, something will crop up, uveitis and, a, you know, occult colitis that becomes uh, clinically apparent, etc. So she could have, you know, the spondoarthritis spectrum of disorders from enteropathic arthritis to um, psoriatic arthritis. I doubt spondylitis, um, but, you know, even whipples and, and, and uh, strange things like that. This could be just plain simple seronegative RA and not until she has multiple joints will she, will I even consider that. I always think in chronic mono or oligoarthritis, crystals um, and in the hands, it would have to therefore be uh, CPPD, uh, pigmented villainizer synovitis, foreign body um, would be the rest of my differential diagnosis on this kind of case. Anyway, um, I told her, you're happy not taking medicine? Fine. Wrap it up so the swelling goes down. Take Tylenol if you need to. Um, but yeah, follow through with a rheumatologist for chronic follow-up because time will give her a firmer diagnosis. Again, room now will be covering ACR. I told you in um, yesterday's QD clinic the tip for ACR 23, and that was to go ahead and um, make sure you attend our daily recap panels at 9 p.m., Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time. You can find it on our channel, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and also on Twitter. We'll be broadcasting those at 9 p.m. Eastern sharp. Today's tip number two is everyone has their topic. You know, you know, Sal is a vasculitis guy, and Sarah, she just loves lupus. But if you have a topic that you really want to follow from the ACR, one, go to my website, go to your registration page, and you can sign up and check a box where you'll get a weekly topic email. Anything that we publish that week on your topic will be sent to you every Monday or Tuesday. So what kind of topics can you sign up for? Gout, spondylitis, auto-inflammatory, drug safety, 
fibromyalgia, lupus, um, psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, TNF inhibitors, IL-17, IL-23, IL-6. There's a, a novel therapies and uh, anti-rheumatic therapy. A lot, a lot of emails you can sign up for, and that will come to you um, the days following the ACR. You'll get like 40 uh, of the citations that were all about auto-inflammatory disease. Also, you can follow um, your topic on certain topic pages on our website during the meeting next week. We have topic pages for RA, PSA, SPA, lupus, and the JAK uh, and TIC inhibitors. Lastly, you can, you'll see late in the week uh, recorded topic panels and recorded topic podcasts where the faculty and experts in this field will get together and talk about the highlights on your topic. This is what you do to get the most out of ACR um, with the least amount of effort on your part. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk tomorrow about another tip for ACR and another new case. This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow's coverage of ACR 2023. We'll be in San Diego. Follow us. Today's case is a patient who I was going to call a no-show won't go, but she's really a habitually non-compliant patient. The question is what to do. Um, At last visit, she's 33. Um, She has seronegative RA that looks like it dates back for, I want to say maybe, where is that? Um, About three or four years. She's been tested several times for serologies and always negative. But at presentation and since, she has had um, a chronic polyarthritis, usually symmetric, usually somewhere around two to five joints. She's had involvement of the MCPs, PIPs, knees, uh, left elbow, left wrist, occasionally a finger. Um, She has all day morning stiffness when I see her and... Uh, her labs were remarkable, remarkable for an elevated sed rate of like 63. So her story is over the last three years, I've seen her about four or five times. Um, between this visit and the last visit, it's been almost a year and a half, right? So I would see her and then she wouldn't come back. I'd see her again and she wouldn't come back. And why she wouldn't come back is I would each time prescribe um, therapy for her RA and she was always reluctant to do that. So, um, and the question is, what do you do when someone just keeps coming back and asking for help? Each time she comes back, she always has active disease. And then she always says that in between, she's doing very well. Uh, but again, she always has swollen joints, morning stiffness, etc. She has no other medical problems. She hardly takes any medicine at all. In the past, in the past I have prescribed for her leflunamide um, and prednisone and methotrexate uh, and hydroxychloroquine. At one time, I think you talked about etanercept. I don't believe she's taken any of those. She outright says, I don't want to take prednisone because I may gain weight. I don't want to take methotrexate because then I'd have to stop drinking. This is a young, healthy um, woman who uh, is successful in her business, is highly social. She wants to look good and play hard and be the girl around town. And um, 
The story she's telling herself is that she doesn't have rheumatoid arthritis, except for intermittently, and I see Dr. Cush, and he fixes it with a shot or something. And so uh, I keep telling her, this to me looks like it's chronic. You tell me it's intermittent. I don't know. She says in between she's active with exercise and um, and going to the beach and traveling, etc. Anyway, on this visit today, she complains of pain, stiffness, swelling in her left elbow um, and her fingers and also her left jaw. Morning stiffness is all day. On exam, she has a tender and four swollen joints. The four swollen joints being left MCP1, left wrist, left, P, left uh, elbow, uh, and a knee. And she has bilateral Baker cyst, worse on the right. So she has like a CDI score of 16. In my clinic, that's a global arthritis score of 16. Um, and she has a left elbow contracture. And today she wants an injection in the elbow. So we talk about her treatment options. She does get a left elbow injection. Um, and again, I offer to her, let's restart the leflunamide or let's um, go back on daily hydroxychloroquine. And, the, and she has to get eye exams for that. She doesn't want to do that. Uh, or we can put her on adalimumab and get a shot every two weeks. And um, she agrees to the adalimumab. She agrees to the injection. But I know, actually, since I saw her, she has not returned. And that's over eight months ago. So the question is, what do you do with someone who's habitually noncompliant and you're really sh- not sure if they're taking any or all medicines or that you're really not following your advice. Number one, you need to create trust with the patient right, so that they will listen to you as opposed to creating their own story. And the story in her head is that she has intermittent arthritis, not rheumatoid arthritis that will maim, disable, and harm her. Uh, and you don't want to be doom and gloom, but the fact is she has numbers and chronicity and RA is always progressive. RA is always damaging. And that's going to happen no matter how young or active um, she is. Uh, so I, I, my rules on people like this are number one, only give, give them a plan, give them an explanation. Uh, so again, hope goals and rules, right? Give them hope that they can get better and avoid taking aggressive medicine if possible. Um, you know, the goals and rules I, I've told her. And then next you only give her enough prescription medicines so that she's going to have to come back to you. She's going to have to go to somebody else. And it could, be, could very well be that she's seeing other doctors to supplement her arthritis needs. Uh, and she plays one against the other. But I don't know about that. I have no evidence of that. Again, she likes me. And, and I think she's very honest with me. I mean, she tells me I, you know, up front, I'm not taking prednisone. I'm not taking methotrexate. Uh, I think I impress upon her that, you know, maybe Humira it might be a good option in her. But... The next option really is you only give medicines that you can guarantee that they are administered, which means it's an infusion therapy. No self-injectables, no self-administered, nothing that requires as little as you can do that requires even laboratory monitoring. So if it's going to be an infusible medicine, my choices for her would be either tocilizumab, abatacept, or rituximab. Uh, And I would sort of present it in that uh, order. And then the last thing I do in people like this is I give them some form of analgesic relief. And her, I gave her a prescription for celecoxib, 200 milligrams QD, maybe increased to BID, always with meals. And then lastly, 
um, since this is the second injection I've given her, you spell out the rules of steroid injections. My rules are, I can inject a joint every six months. I can inject the same joint twice. After that, I'm going to be pushing back because I don't want to do three, four, five Q6 month injections in a knee or an elbow or anything else. Uh, I think that's just a bad idea. Basically, you should be treating the condition so that you don't need to do joint injections. That's it. That's how I would manage the habitually non-compliant patient. Again, ACR is coming up. I, if you want to know a great way to consume the ACR, we gave you some tips in the first two QD clinics. Um, my next tip is going to be rheumatology roundup. You know, Dr. Artie Cavanaugh and I have been doing rheumatology roundup for over 15 years. They stopped, ACR stopped us doing it about two years ago, but we still do it on room now. In one hour, we'll cover, it's going to be live streamed next Friday, which would be, I guess, the 16th or 17th. Um, it's going to be at 3 p.m. Pacific time, and it's going to be 17th, November 17th, 3 p.m. Pacific time, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to have a live stream of Kavanaugh and Kush doing rheumatology roundup where we give you our highlights. We'll cover what we think are the 15 or 16 best abstracts from the meeting. It's infotainment at its best. Be sure to tune in. And if you're not there for the live stream, you can actually listen to the recorded event either on video or on podcast. Tune in for more QD Clinics during ACR week. This is ACR QD Clinic, and I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now. QD Clinics is brought to you by Room Now's coverage of ACR Convergence 2023. We'll be there in San Diego reporting. Hope you follow us. Today's case is the fainting OA patient. 68 years old, history of knee OA, um, comes into the emergency room as she had an acute syncopal attack while shopping. On presentation, no chest pain, dyspnea, palpitations, nausea, vomiting, no recent illness. She has a past history of knee OA, um, TIA last year. She's got AFib and she's got diabetes. She currently takes uh, medicine for her diabetes. Uh, she's on a nebumatone and uh, she also takes warfarin. So when she presents, she is orthostatic. Her blood pressure is normal, but she does change with position. Um, she has no belly tenderness. Her joints show OA and she has blood in her stool on further examination. She is anemic. Her hemoglobin is down to 9.2. You don't know what it was previously. And clearly, this is someone who's at high risk for uh, peptic ulcer based on um, taking a non-steroidal, based on having, being older, based on um, also being on a blood thinner. Uh, and the question is, how do you manage this? And, you know, this could turn into a, a multiple choice question, but the answer is, you obviously stop the non-steroidal, you uh, hold the warfarin, uh, you put her on a, a proton pump inhibitor, um, and you move forward. She's also taking Tylenol, acetaminophen, and the general rule with acute bleed is you stop the acetaminophen as well, because that can contribute and potentiate the problem, especially if they're on a blood thinner. So there are a number of things to talk about here that are important.
um, back when I was a fellow and when they were developing drugs like misoprostol and COX-2 inhibitors, the advertised um, number was that non-steroidals were responsible for 18,000 deaths per year, over 100,000 hospitalizations and over 18,000 deaths, and that that could be avoided by either using um, a protective agent like misoprostol or um, using a more selective non-steroidal like, uh, at that time, um, Vioxx or Celebrex, uh, and then knowing when to use a PPI. What I've noticed in the last decade is that non-steroidal prescriptions are way down. Interestingly, um, maybe not worldwide, but in developed countries, the incidence of peptic ulcer disease is way down as well, or trending down, I should say. And I think that there are multiple reasons for that. Maybe we don't write as many prescriptions for non-steroidals, certainly a specialist, and I think even primary care doctors are writing fewer prescriptions. Secondly, there's greater recognition of Helicobacter pylori and its contribution to peptic ulcer and its earlier identification, treatment, etc., I think leads to um, uh, better avoidance of this horrible complication. And then lastly, more over-the-counter and widespread availability of proton pump inhibitors like uh, omeprazole, etc., has probably contributed to this going down in developed countries like the United States. But the second problem here is managing pain. I noticed that our fellows and residents don't write prescriptions for um, non-steroidals, nor for opioids. Uh, that makes sense, given the opioid problem and epidemic. But how is the patient's pain being addressed? Everyone will say, well, you know, acetaminophen doesn't work. Tramadol is as good as placebo, and it's got addiction potential. I don't know if I agree with any of that. But I do know that we are probably very uh, inadequate in managing pain. Again, treating the underlying disease, managing um, infl- inflammation, uh, getting to the core of the problem can help alleviate the need for pain medicine. But I think overall, we're not managing pain. But then again, being aggressive, using a lot of non-steroidals may increase the risk, especially in high-risk people. You know who they are, right? They're the elderly. They're people who had prior ulcers. So maybe the bottom line is the elderly should not get non-steroidals. And anybody who's had a prior ulcer or a real good suggestion of a prior ulcer should never get another non-steroidal, even a selective one like celecoxib. And the question is, do we in fact practice that way? So we do know, um, for the most part, chronic PPI use is safe, especially when needed and used in high-risk patients. Uh, High-risk patients would be people over 60 and people who have symptoms, uh, people who are using the drug chronically. Again, I would reiterate that if you had a prior ulcer, you should never get a non-steroidal, meaning I would never give a non-steroidal plus a PPI to someone who wanted it if they really did have a prior gastric or duodenal ulcer. Sorry, just won't go there. It's too risky. Um, I think when I can, I lessen risk by using PPIs, by using uh, COX-2 selective drugs like celecoxib. Uh, And then lastly, minimizing dose is probably your last tool of defense. That's it for this QD clinic. 
remember, we're going to be at ACR, and the one thing you want to do in trying to get something out of ACR is follow our podcast. Our podcast channel is going to be rife with content. Every day, starting Sunday, we'll be putting out a daily podcast of our faculty reports. There'll probably be at least two podcasts a day when that happens. Secondly, um, every day we do a daily recap panel that becomes a video and also becomes a podcast. That's at the end of every day, day one, day two, day three, day four. Also, there'll be topic uh, panels that will occur towards the end of the week, starting on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, So there'll be a podcast, for instance, on spondoarthritis or a podcast on Jack and Tick 2 research. There'll also be topic podcasts which are not the panels, but reports that will compile into one podcast. Uh, Any report that was on RA will go into an RA topic podcast. And the last podcast you'll find on Room Now is going to be the end of the week next week, the Friday um, Rheumatology Roundup, Artie Kavanaugh and myself. I think I gave you the wrong time yesterday. That's going to be at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. We're going to live stream it. Or you can just pick up the podcast or the video on the website and watch it that way. Tune in tomorrow for our last ACR QD Clinic. This ACR QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow's coverage of ACR 2023. Whether you're in San Diego at the meeting or attending virtually from home, you'll benefit from following our coverage. Our case today is coughing up blood. A 24-year-old woman who has a 14-month history of lupus uh, comes in. Her lupus was based on having a malar rash, swollen PIPs, proteinuria, and positive serologies. She's been taking uh, hydroxychloroquine, prednisone 7.5, and the baby aspirin every day. The patient presents to the hospital with a two-day history of acute dyspnea, a non-productive cough, hemoptysis, and fever up to 103. She also complains of headache and weakness. When you see the patient in the emergency room, the temperature is 103. The pulse is 116. The patient's breathing 28 times per minute. Using accessory muscles, there is no hypotension. The rash of lupus is present. Um, there is no um, uh, distended jugular veins. There is no edema, but there are bilateral rales uh, in the lung fields, worse on the right. Chest x-ray shows um, alve- uh, patchy uh, in- uh, alveolar infiltrates bilaterally with uh, blunting of the right costophrenic angle. Uh, the heart size is normal. The blood gases shows a PO2 of 69, a pH of 7.5. The white count's 11, the hemoglobin is, um, is 10, and the platelet count's 105. The question is, do you need a diagnostic test? And let's just do a multiple choice question. So to confirm the diagnosis which is in your head, would you order A, an anti-GBM antibody for good pastures? Hmm? B, an open lung biopsy. C, um, culture of sputum. D, um, a response to pulse steroids, or E, the correct response, sputum looking for hemosiderin-laden macrophages. That would be the most specific 
finding for alveolar hemorrhage, right? Would it not? The only other, <clears throat> maybe easier to get, more specific finding would actually be to do bronchoscopy and find blood, you know, in the bronchi. Uh, because if someone is spitting up or coughing up blood, you don't always, you don't truly know whether it's coming from the lungs or from the GI tract or upper oropharynx. So again, getting it from sputum samples or directly from the lung is going to be your best way of diagnosing diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. We said at the outset, this patient has lupus. We don't need to be looking for, you know, a red herring like Goodpasture syndrome, someone who's known to get or have the possibility of alveolar hemorrhage. Other causes of alveolar hemorrhage would include good pastures, any systemic necrotizing vasculitis like um, GPA, um, patients with ITP, TTP, patients who have profound um, low platelet counts, even sarcoidosis, there's a million and one causes, paragonomyosis, I have no idea other than that's a parasitic infection which can cause this problem. Um, and... How are you going to suspect it? Well, when it's an acute bleed, it's usually an acute onset of dyspnea and shortness of breath. Uh, that is paralleled by hypoxia proven on blood gas or pulse oximetry. They may have a rapid drop in their hemoglobin such that they are anemic. On chest x-ray, they are usually shown to have patchy infiltrates, usually bilaterally. You know, there may be a dominance of one side over the other, usually right more than left, but it can be either side, right? And the diagnosis is either based on bronchoscopy, bronchoalveolar lavage, getting sputum, and finding hemosiderin-laden macrophages. Whether there's a contribution, uh, a truly diagnostic finding of a sudden lowering of the hemoglobin was 13, now it's a, all of a sudden 10, um, five days later when they're short of breath and they have patchy infiltrates, again, uh, leads to the high suspicion that this could be alveolar hemorrhage. Uh, treatment is obviously um, stopping any drugs that could be um, causing the problem, fixing the hematologic or vascular abnormalities that could be causing the problem, and then treating the underlying disease. I got to say that in my many years at Parkland, um, I've seen a lot of alveolar hemorrhage Probably, and in my whole career, I've probably seen more alveolar hemorrhage due to lupus than I have due to vasculitis and GPA. But they're pretty close. That's kind of what I think what most rheumatologists are going to see. Can't, I've never seen a really good case of good pastures. I've heard about it. Colleagues have had a case. But I've never actually had a case of good pastures. So, again, I just throw that out there for some perspective when it comes to um, what kind of diagnostic testing you're going to do. My bias, by the way, in lupus at least, um, we, is that patients should receive pulse steroids. If you looked at, I did a long time ago, looked at how lupus patients with alveolar hemorrhage fared when they got steroids, high-dose steroids, or pulse steroids. Clearly, survival was better with pulse steroids, in my opinion. More recently, Peter Merkel uh, and others did the PEXIVAS study. I think that's going to be presented again at ACR. Um, and last time, last year, they presented another analysis looking at patients with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. You know, the previous PEXIVAS study, which looked at the utility of plasma exchange with or without steroids, showed really no utility in patients with vasculitis. But the last analysis, sub-analysis from last year, said if you had alveolar hemorrhage, 
the numbers weren't great, and meaning they did not achieve statistical significance, but it certainly looked like there was a clear advantage to giving um, uh, plasma exchange or doing plasma exchange in patients with alveolar hemorrhage and vasculitis. So I would throw that in the mix because there's a high mortality with this condition. Hope you found this interesting. I certainly did. Uh, I want to remind you, uh, as you go to ACR, as you watch it from home, the one thing that you can do uh, with our coverage is look at our live stream videos. We're going to be live streaming videos of our daily panels where we're going to recap day one, day two, day three. That's going to be at 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can catch that live stream. And the live streams are available on our Room Now webpage, our coverage webpage, our YouTube channel, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all under Room Now. We're going to do live streams for all the daily recaps. We're going to do it for the Rheumatology Roundup on Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific time. A great way to tune in and hear from those attending and the experts on what they thought was really hot stuff from ACR 23. We'll see you at the meeting. Take care.